do quite a bit of skipping around. I got I want a, a few places I just want to touch in Matthew three and four before we go into sorry Malachi three and four before we go to Matthew eleven. And actually, we're going to get a running start out of two chapter two in verse seventeen. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? God still speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, the day is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the day of old, as in former days. Let's jump to verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who hear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let me pray. Father, you have spoken. And we pray that you give us ears to hear. A mind to understand. And a will that is repentant. Your kingdom come and your will be done. 
on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Matthew 11. Uh, we pick back up in verse 7. If you were here last week or if you remember, um, past all the turkey and ham and dressing, we, we highlighted three words that aren't necessarily in chapter 11, but are very... Uh, a very good summation of the chapter. And those three words were revelation, rejection, and redemption. And by the providence of God, there are a lot of R's all throughout the sermon. So it wasn't my intention, but it just sort of kept happening. So the the three words that summarize this chapter and a lot of this section of Matthew is revelation, rejection, and redemption, and more than likely, you also notice that already in Malachi, as we read a few of those verses. So we continue in Matthew, and the big question that's going to continue to be asked, sort of, uh, or implied, is who is Jesus? And then, on the back end of that, how do you respond to him? Uh, he's been revealing himself. Matthew and how Matthew's been writing this gospel has been revealing continuously about who Jesus is. His first verse told us so much. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's where the word revelation comes to uncover, to bring light to, to reveal. That is what's happening with this gospel and very much so in what we are reading about in this chapter. Jesus himself is doing a lot of revealing in his preaching, in his words, in his teaching, in his works, in the signs and the miracles, in the healing and the cleansing and the raising, all that we saw in last week. Um, But it's not just Jesus that's doing the revealing. It's not just Jesus doing the gospel ministry, but we find out that John the Baptist is doing a similar thing. He's also uncovering and revealing for the sake of what God is doing in the kingdom, for the kingdom, through the King Jesus. Uh, we know that John begins in, John, in Matthew 3 by declaring that his message is that the kingdom is at hand and repent. And he sent his messengers in verses 1 through Six, he sent his, not his messengers, but he sent, yeah, some messengers, some disciples to ask Jesus, okay, I've been preaching about this kingdom that is to come and the one that who is to come after me, is that who you are? Are you the one that I'm supposed to be preaching about? And Jesus answers his question by showing him or revealing, giving revelation of the works and the words that he's been doing, namely, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And he closes that section, that, 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 that paragraph with, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And if you recall, we, we, we spent the majority of our time last Sunday realizing that Jesus is a rock, You'll either stumble over him or you'll build upon him. You'll be blessed in the building or you'll be cursed in the offend and being offended and stumbling over him. 
Now that sort of summarizes where we've been. And there's two things I want you to keep in mind as we move forward. Not just in chapter 11, but all throughout Matthew. Um, Number one, we must not underestimate the magnitude of the revelation. We cannot underestimate the magnitude. And what, what I mean by that is the significance of what it means when Jesus or John says the kingdom of heaven is near. I'll confess that I've not fully understood the magnitude of that revelation. And I am in pursuit of understanding that greater. And I want you all to join me in that pursuit. I've asked myself the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? And I've sat and answered the question, um, think about that. If someone asked you, what is the kingdom of heaven, how would you respond? And I want you to keep that in your mind. And I want you to go on this journey. I want you, when we, when we, see, when we see references to Malachi or Micah or Isaiah, a lot of the answers of what is this kingdom are in those passages. Those sort of help us fill in the gaps. So as we move through Matthew... I want you to. I hope that we can uncover the significance of what this revelation is of the the nearness of the kingdom. Um, I'm hoping as you as you have a better understanding of that reality, the advents of Christ, his first coming and his second take on a whole new meaning. Not necessarily a whole new meaning, but maybe you understand the magnitude of those those advents, those appearing appearances. Um, it enhances your understanding of the gospel when you realize what the kingdom of God and it being near means. So I want us to focus on that, but also... As the revelation, hopefully, of the nearness of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom is unfolded for us or enhanced for us, that we realize that that revelation demands a response. And that's what we're, that's what we're going to see a lot in chapter 11, that as, it, as the truth is being revealed, a, a response is always demanded and here's the here's the reality that you've got to understand you're always responding whether you think you are or aren't to ignore is to reject to take lightly is to reject it's either reject or repent there's no in between there's no i'm not sure it's what it's it's not Whether, but which. You're always responding to the revelation that is at hand. So with that said, look at verse 7. So what we're going to start to see in verse 7 and onward is the overlap of revelation and rejection. We're going to see them sort of come together as we lead into into redemption. Verse 7, as they went away, that would be John's disciples or the messengers of John who were, who were there to, to uh, ask this question of Jesus. 
Are you the one who is to come? After they go away, we would assume satisfied and understanding, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds concerning him. I'm sorry, concerning John. And I, when I read that, I imagined, you know, when you've, you've got two kids in, in front of you or, or two people in a situation and there's something that has happened that's wrong and one of them is in one of them you find out is innocent and the other one you find out is guilty and you start talking with the innocent one first and you realize and then you realize that it's the other person you need to be talking to and then you turn and you're like okay now you're next you're the person I really need to be talking to here I, I get that sense from Jesus as he turns and looks at the crowd as John's disciples walk away he, he turns and, and wants to make clear to them what the ministry of John means. Because as you read on, it seems as if they've rejected it. They've rejected to some degree or some amount of them have rejected the message and the purpose of John the Baptist. Uh, there's, there is either a correction, a condemning, or both in the way Jesus addresses the crowd here. Look what he says. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Almost seems sarcastic in his questioning. Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Well, that's not much to see, right? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, we know that John wasn't dressed in soft clothing. He was dressed as a prophet. He was dressed in rough clothing as as uh, the tradition of prophets do. Um, he says, Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's houses. So he says, You've not gone out to see a king because John's wearing camel's hair. He's in some itchy outfit. But I think there might be a little bit of irony in that statement because do you know where John is at this time, more than likely? In the prison of a, of a king's house. Right? You didn't go out to see a king, but you didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. He says, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. Yes, I tell you, you went out to see a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Jesus quotes Malachi 3.1, which we've already read. So Jesus says, okay, he's not nothing, but he's not a king. What is he? Well, he's two things. He is a prophet, like all other prophets, but he's something else. He is a sign. He is a sign of what? Well, Malachi 3 told us, right after this quotation, he says that I'll send my messenger, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So we've got John in the wilderness proclaiming the word of God, prophesying about the coming one, but also a sign that the coming one is here. And then Jesus connects the dots for them a little bit more in verse 13 as he speaks uh, about John in this way, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. 
a sign of the fulfillment of the word and will of God. Behold, I will send you Elijah, as we read in Malachi 4. Jesus says, that has happened, and it was fulfilled in John. What did you see? The fulfillment of prophecy. What did you go out to see? The forerunner of the day of the Lord. What does this presence of John reveal? This is quite a statement out of Malachi 4. Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And then there's an interesting statement that Malachi makes in talking about John's appearing. He says says something to the effect that when he comes, he will turn hearts to their children and hearts hearts of the fathers to their children and hearts of the children to their fathers. I think I mentioned this last week, but how did what did Jesus say they were going to the disciples were going to endure when they went out to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom? That they would see families against one another, right? Brother against brother, father against child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. But God prophesies through Malachi that when Elijah comes before the great and awesome day of the Lord, hearts will be changed from that wickedness. How does that happen? How do hearts how are hearts changed? How's how's John the Baptist going to accomplish such a feat? Revelation. He's going to preach. He's going to teach. He's going to take the thing that the only thing that has power to change hearts. The word of God. He's in the wilderness with the most powerful weapon on the earth in all creation. The word of God. The kingdom of God is at hand and repent. And by the power of that word, by the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom not by a snap of fingers or a wiggle of his nose, but by the simple declaration of the truth, hearts will be changed. The only way to redemption is through revelation. The only way to Christ is through the Word of God. Verse 11 and 12, back in Matthew, some difficult passages going to kind of just jump through real fast here truly i say to you among those born of women there will arise no one greater than john the baptist yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he all right so here here's what i want us to think about as we look at these next few verses and this is what i want you to focus on the greatness of the kingdom The greatness of this kingdom that is near. Now you're thinking, well, Luke, doesn't it say that John is great? Among those born of women, has there arisen no one greater than John the Baptist? Yes. Yet, he says, the lowest person in the kingdom of God is without a doubt greater than John the Baptist. How is that possible? Well, it's not the greatness of the low person. It's the greatness of the kingdom that they belong to. 
Think about what we just said John the Baptist is. He's a prophet of God. Anybody reached that level yet? No. He's the forerunner of the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. Anybody fulfill prophecy lately? How great is this man born of woman? But how do you enter the kingdom of God? To be born of the Spirit. You who are born of the Spirit, for that's the only way to enter the kingdom of God, you are greater than anyone born of woman, even if he is a prophet. This is how great the kingdom of God is. The citizen in the kingdom of heaven is even greater than John the Baptist. And we could really get lost in breaking all that down, um, but I want you to focus on a few things here. A few things to take home with you with this understanding of being the being great as one least in the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is so great that you must cherish that citizenship above all others. Your citizenship within the kingdom of heaven is so great that it must be the citizenship which you cherish above all. We have dual citizenship, as you know, kingdom uh, citizens of this kingdom, but citizens of this world for a temporary time as well. Make sure that you cherish your citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I just want to put this in. When I say the kingdom of heaven, I'm not talking about the fact that you're going to be in heaven. The kingdom of heaven and heaven are two totally different things. Now, that might set you back for a second. The Heaven is temporary. You understand that, right? It's what, what people call inter, the intermediate state. It is just the holding place for those who are waiting on the return of Christ who have passed on. So heaven does not equal the kingdom of heaven, right? So don't just think, okay, I'm in heaven, so that's a great thing. No, no, no. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God, which will be fully established upon this earth in his return. It is what the gospel has come to, to, to proclaim, that the kingdom of God is coming in its fullness. So uh, cherish your citizenship of the kingdom of God above your American citizenship. Uh, but, but there's danger in that, that you could neglect any other citizenship you might have. So just because you're a kingdom of, of heaven, or you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and that is your top citizenship, you must not neglect being an American or being a husband or a wife or a child. We have to avoid the danger of thinking nothing else matters while we live because we're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Actually, you're what? An ambassador in this world. You're an, uh, dads, Grandpas, you, you are an ambassador. If you're a Christian, you're an, an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven within your family. You represent the kingdom of heaven as a man within your household. I hope that puts some pressure on you. But lastly, you sort of coming off of, of that truth... You have responsibilities and duties as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And you must understand that they're 
their, those duties and responsibilities have eternal consequences. Not only are you, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, le- uh, greater than John the Baptist, I would, be, I would say it's safe to say you're going to do greater works than John the Baptist. And how can I say that? Because Jesus said that we would do greater works than him. Right? So we cannot neglect that which we've been called to do. All right, moving on, verse 12, another tough one. Um, from the kingdom of heaven has... From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. There's a lot of debate even about the translation there. Here's what I want to say. Keeping in mind the greatness of the kingdom, despite the greatness of the kingdom, there has, there has been and always will be enemies of the kingdom of heaven. John knows this firsthand as he has given his life for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What does he show for it? Decapitation. If you neglect your citizenship within the kingdom of God, you don't have to worry about this verse. There's no violence. There's no force that's going to come at you. If you neglect your position, your privilege, your duty of being a citizen of the kingdom of, of, he- of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So let's keep going. Verse 16 through 19. I, I've got as a heading here for this section, the parable of rejection. So sort of coming to a head of Jesus explaining their rejection, not just of John, but also of him, because to reject John is also to reject Jesus. Verse 16, But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, We know that children have wonderful imaginations. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that he's comparing this group of people in the time of John the Baptist and Jesus to children who are playing. So you're a child, you know, and you've got all kinds of games that you play in your imagination with other kids. Here, Jesus brings up two games that children at this time would play. One was a joyful game, and one was a sad game. One would be a, a game of a wedding. They would they would enact a wedding. There would my kids even do this in the weirdest sense. They they have a wedding, right? And it's a joyful time. And he says, for that game, we played the flute for you. That's to show a game of joy. And then in the second half of the parable, he says, uh, we sang a dirge. This would be a game like a funeral. A sad game. And I know we, we understand this. And so he says, we sang a dirge. That's a sad song of mourning. 
But what does he say? What is he saying? So the flute, the playing of the flute and the singing the dirge are the revelation. It's the revealing of joy and mourning. And what is the problem? This generation did not respond. We played the flute for you. It was a joyous wedding game. And you did not dance. We sang a dirge. We played the funeral game. And you didn't play along. You didn't mourn. Now look what he says in verse 18 to connect the dots. For John came neither eating nor drinking. Well, that sounds pretty mournful. He wouldn't even eat but locusts and honey. And you didn't play along. You said he's got a demon. Okay, well, how about the joyful wedding song? Verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So there's the opposite. Did you respond? No. You said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they rejected the feasting and the fasting, the mourning of sin and the joy of eternal life. They weren't satisfied with John baptizing sinners, and they sure as heck weren't uh, responding to Jesus eating with sinners. They had rejected them outright, both of them. They responded, but they did not respond as they were supposed to, and that is in repentance. This odd thing, though, because when you go and look at the first few ver- first few chapters of Matthew, what, what do you hear about the crowds with John the Baptist? All Judea came out to see him. And then in, I think it's chapter 4, when Jesus' ministry is beginning to spread, it, say, it says that fame, his fame spread throughout the area. Now, we can't understand the motives of these crowds and these people who went out to see John in the wilderness and Jesus in the, in the, um, in the synagogues. But we can have an idea of why some bad motives. And those motives probably are similar to why people follow Christian crowds today. They see the crowd going out into the wilderness and they don't want to be left out. They want to follow the crowd. Or they understand that there is some sense of morality going on with John and Jesus. There's some sense of morality that's taking place at church. And so if I follow the crowd, if I put myself in that position, I will be marked out as one of the good people. Or it could just be, hey, this is a new thing. Let's try something different. They were there. These crowds went out to the wilderness. They went to the synagogues. They were there, but they weren't really there. They heard, but they weren't really hearing. And this is a pattern you're going to be seeing as we finish chapter 11 and go into chapter 13, they, they can see, but they're not really seeing. They hear, but they're not really understanding. 
They might even be baptized. But there was no power. And I wonder if this is the case of any of us this morning as we come to worship. We're here, but maybe spiritually or mentally we might as well be in bed. Being somewhere physical or joining into something doesn't earn us points with God. It's actually the opposite. To join the crowd where revelation is taking place, you're actually storing up judgment, which we'll come to in a minute. Look at the end of verse 19. Last sentence. He says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So you rejected John and his, and his ministry. You rejected me and my ministry. Yet wisdom, he says, is justified by her deeds. Jesus is saying this, a little paraphrase. Yes, okay, you re- this generation, you reject John, you reject me. You may ridicule John as demon-possessed. You may say that I love sinners. Uh, but here's what you must understand, generation, crowds, The deeds and actions you mock are based on the wisdom of God. And this statement is one of those, just wait and see. Or the proof is in the pudding. Is basically what Jesus is saying. This little bitty proverb that seems a little difficult. To understand, what can we take from this little bitty proverb Jesus teaches us here? Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Here's what I want to put before you. If your life and actions, if your words, if your ways are based on the wisdom of God, do not let anyone mock you or ridicule you to the point that you stop. Because that's all John and Jesus were getting. They were beat. They were look what they were calling them. Don't be swayed by the voice of the crowds that say, "Dude, that's weird. That's awkward. Why do you do that?" Who cares? what they call you? Who cares what you stop getting invited to? Who cares what they say to you? Wisdom will justify your deeds. God's wisdom will justify your deeds. So what must you do? Remain faithful, continue on the path of wisdom and godliness, and remember Jesus' words back in chapter 10. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called me the master, Jesus, if they've called me the master of the house of Beelzebul, how much more are they going to malign you? But remember, wisdom is justified by her deeds. What does that make you? blessed happy we talked about that last week blessed by God 
All right, so we get to the last section, 20 through 24, the ramifications of rejecting the revelation. I told you there's a lot of R's. The ramifications of rejecting the revelation summed up really well in verse 20. Look what he says. Look what it says. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now the word, the word there we see denounce or revile or reproach. The, the, the King James got, has got one on me I didn't never heard of. To upbraid. But when I looked up the word upbraid, it was, it was very helpful. The Cambridge Dictionary says the word upbraid is to forcefully or angrily tell someone they should not have done a particular thing and criticize them for having done it. And that's Jesus' attitude right now to these cities. But why so harsh on these cities? Why is he really letting them have it? And this is what I want you to understand. Jesus isn't afraid to let somebody have it. There's a reason why there are so many exclamation points that are in this section. He is upbraiding them. But why? Why so harsh with these cities? All right, it says it in this verse. Where most of his mighty works had been done. What's the R word there? Revelation. Revealing. The, the places of his greatest revelation where most of his where most of his mighty works had been done. What was their response? It wasn't repentance, but rejection. God's revelation demands a response. And you are always responding. The question is, is is it the right response? Hear the word, the revelation. Believe the word. Here's one we kind of mess up or don't don't do or don't even consider. Think about the word. Think about it. Do you I was talking to the kids about the mind the other day. It could be the greatest physical gift God has given us. It can't be replicated. But yet for some reason, modern day American Christianity doesn't want to use it. The only way to truly take in the revelation and to benefit from it is to meditate upon it. To think. To dwell on it. Hear the word, believe the word, think about the word, and then you got to follow up and obey the word. This is the practice and pattern of this is how this is how our worship, our order of worship is set up. You understand that, right? Revelation. We start with the word of God. Then what do we do? We respond to the word of God. We don't we don't respond to anything. We don't want to respond to anything other than the revelation, the word of God. Because it's the only thing that we can absolutely say is what? True. Your emotions cannot always be true. They will not always be true. 
the weather doesn't feel like it's true today. But the word is always the starting point. Jesus gives a he's got a method of trial here. He puts these cities on trial and proclaims a judgment. Verse 21. Woe. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And he says in 23, And you, Capernaum. Woe is a word of warning and danger. It's really in contrast to the word blessed. If you look at the Sermon on the Plains in Luke 6. It's it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus goes through the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, and then he then in contrast to it, woe to you who, woe to you who. You're blessed or you're warned. Right? That's how he begins his his method of tri- his trial against these cities. Warning them, under, letting them understand that they are not in, in a blessed state. And then he does this thing in comparison, comparison these cities that he has been to and he has done these mighty works in. And he compares them to cities of the Old Testament. To Chorazin and Bethsaida, he compares them to Tyre and Sidon. Now, if you take a stroll through the Old Testament prophets, you're going to see a great deal of God's displeasure to Tyre and Sidon. They are a pagan idol. Oh, I'm having a hard time. They're pagans and they're idol worshippers. And God and Isaiah and and uh, Ezekiel and some other minor prophets slam Tyre and Sidon for the wickedness. But yet, Chorazin, but Jesus compares Chorazin and Bethsaida to them. And then Capernaum. Capernaum, which was Jesus, basically his second hometown during his early part of his ministry, compares Capernaum or contrasts Capernaum with Sodom. Now, I think we're more familiar with Sodom from Genesis. But look what he says in contrasting them. Verse 21. Halfway, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 23, to Capernaum. For if the mighty works done in you, Capernaum, what had been done in Sodom, it would have remained. There's another R word. But why would they remain until this day? Why? Because he's implying that if these works would have been done in Sodom, Sodom, we're talking about Sodom. If Jesus would have healed the blind, cleansed the lepers, raised the dead, and preached good news to the poor, Sodom would have repented. They would have seen the revelation and repented. They would would have had a positive response to the revelation. What's the ramifications? Well, verse 22. What's the ramifications of these cities 
rejecting the revelation of Jesus. Verse 22, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Verse 24, speaking to Capernaum, but I tell you it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. To reject the revelation of the kingdom of God is to bring unbearable punishment upon yourself. I told you we cannot underestimate the magnitude of this kingdom. Do you see the magnitude of the kingdom of God? More unbearable to reject the revelation of the kingdom of God than to be a pagan idol worshiper. More unbearable to reject the gospel of the kingdom of God than to be a sodomite. That's a play on words. Now there's... We're almost done. But I have to show you three things that sit within this text, 20 through 24... Three theological realities that you have to face. Three theological realities you have to face. And I'll just tell you they're uncomfortable. Okay? Number one, regarding God's omniscience. Do you know what God's omniscience is? It's it's his knowledge and omni meaning all. God's omniscience. God's knowledge is beyond what actually happens. Uh, If you want a fancy word, it would be contingent knowledge. What do we mean by contingent knowledge? It means in God's omniscience, he knows the outcomes of unrealized circumstances. Things that didn't take place. You you and I, we've said it before. Well, if, if... if this thing would have happened to me, then I would have responded this way. Well, you don't know that, right? Why? Because you're not God. You don't know how you would respond in certain circumstances. But God plainly does, apparently. If these mighty works would have been done in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, they would have repented. God knew an outcome That didn't take place. Isaiah 46 tells us that God set by his counsel, by his will, the beginning and the end and all things in between. That's verse 46. But this text apparently teaches us that he even has set or knows the things that could have happened in between. If the mighty works done in you had been done. But the thing is, is they didn't. These things didn't happen. This is a taste of God's infinite knowledge. See, when you think about it in that sense, all knowledge, omniscience, but infinite knowledge, you realize that God can know even things that did not actually take place. So with that, the second thing is regarding God's will. God is free. Now, I'll just tell you now, these have been, this was helpful from uh, reading a very uh, prominent 
Baptist theologian, D.A. Carson, he, trust me, I did not come up with this on my own. Regarding God's will, God is free. He's unbound. He does as he pleases. He does what we think or know in Ephesians according to the counsel of his will. Because you're thinking, and we should think, if Sodom would have repented at such revelation, should not God have given them such revelation? Is God withholding such revelation from Sodom okay? If he knew that to reveal such knowledge would cause them to repent. But it was according to his good and perfect will that he did not. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire and brimstone fell from the sky and destroyed them. But they would have repented, right? Here's what we must understand. And we'll see this next week. We touched on it last week. God doesn't owe anyone anything, including revelation, including grace. And we, his creatures, do not get to set the parameters of how he ought to reveal or judge. To have any implication within our hearts that God should have, even though he didn't, is to, is to walk the line of calling God unjust or unloving. But the problem is, is our understanding of God and justice and love falls so short that we cannot make such suggestions. The third one. Regarding God's judgment, God's judgment is not a one-size-fits-all, okay? There are degrees of judgment, and flowing from those degrees of judgment are degrees of punishment. What are these degrees based on? Opportunity. Opportunity to response to what God has revealed to them specifically. It's easily seen in the in the text, right? It will be more, or it it will not be it, uh, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than Cherazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. The degree of judgment and punishment for those three cities will be greater than the cities out of the old. Spurgeon says this in uh, about this passage. The sin is in proportion to the light. What Do you understand the connection between light and revelation? When you turn the light on, you reveal what's there. The sin is in proportion 
to the light. The magnitude of the sin is equal to the magnitude of what has been revealed. And what this again, the greatness of the kingdom of God. What is being revealed is that the kingdom of God is at hand. And so therefore the rejection of it is greater than Sodom's rejection of whatever it is they rejected. What well, was God? Take just a uh, you take little Johnny and little Billy. Little Billy comes over to Johnny's house. Johnny's mom said, "I made this pie for tonight's Thanksgiving dinner." Little Johnny, don't you eat it. And little Johnny says, "Hey Billy, let's go eat that pie." And Billy's like, "Yeah, let's go eat that pie." Little Johnny and little Billy both go and eat that pie that they weren't supposed to eat. If little Johnny's mom is truly just. She should punish her son more than little Billy, right? Because who had more knowledge of the truth? Johnny. Now, some bad theology can come from this in a couple ways. Number one, knowing that there's degrees of just judgment and, and punishment we can get into this idea that, oh, my sin's not as bad as someone else's. And therefore get into the danger of falling into what we would say small sin. But what we must understand is all sin is wicked before God and all sin, big or small, will condemn you. The other danger is that we could take it the opposite way and say... If God judges based on accountability or, or opportunity, what will God do with the unreached peoples in the jungles? Surely he can't condemn someone who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've had no revelation. They've had no gospel preached to them. Sodom would like a word. You understand? Sodom didn't hear the gospel of the kingdom of God, but guess what will happen to them on the day of judgment? They will be condemned and punished by God for their rejection of what? God. When we think about the tribesmen in a jungle... We can't look at him and say, he's a poor, innocent man. If you think that, you've missed Romans 1. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, even if you don't know English, ever since... The New Testament was created? No. Ever since the creation of the world, in all things that have been made, so who is without excuse? Everyone. No one is outside of God's judgment. But here's the warning, really, that we need to take, and here's how we close. The warning isn't for the man in the jungle, but it's for you who sit in the pews. 
Why? Because he lives in darkness and you live in light. And what is light? Revelation. Truth. And what did Spurgeon say? The sin is in proportion to the light. The ignorant man in the jungle is Sodom. The unrepentant churchgoer is Capernaum. Yes, both will be judged, but the 21st century American will receive a much greater punishment than the heathen in the jungle. What's your response to God's revelation? What's your response to the gospel? What's your response to the patience and kindness of God as He has given you another day and another day and another day? I, I want to warn you, don't, on the basis of the greatness of the kingdom of, hev- of, of heaven, do not be counted with the number of Cherazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. It is unbearable. It isn't that hell is reserved for those cities and those who reject the gospel of the kingdom of God, but there are deeper places of hell that will be their eternal dwelling. And this is much of what Hebrews 5 and 6 is about. And I don't I, I want you to read Hebrews the last not not now, but this maybe this afternoon, this evening, this week, before we come back Wednesday. Read the last portion of Hebrews 5. And Hebrews 6, and and the first half of Hebrews 6. And let me just summarize it for you quickly, and I'm going to close. I I apologize. The warning in Hebrews 5 and 6 is to the people who have had the lights turned on, who've tasted a bit of the goodness of God, but yet are not bearing fruit. They're not growing. They're not gaining in holiness or knowledge. And it says that they are worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I think that section I use of a, a saying that says, If you're not growing, you're in big danger of going. What are you doing with the light that has been shown around you? Are you using it to uncover the sin that's in the darkest places of your heart? Are you using that light to reveal the gospel of the grace of Christ to to others around you? I just want to conclude by saying this. Every hearer of the gospel, every person who has heard the... I'm just going to talk about in this room right now. Everyone who has heard who Christ is, what he has done, and what is coming, every hearer of the gospel is either much happier, a.k.a. blessed, or much more wretched before they heard it. And how can this be? 
It's because the greatness of the revelation, which is the greatness of the kingdom of God that has come near. It is because of the greatness of the king who is Jesus Christ. The stakes have been raised. God has revealed more than ever his will and his purpose and his kingdom. And the Christ he has sent has come. Do you want to be blessed or denounced? I close with this, just two verses out of Colossians. And this will carry us over into next week. Timely, considering Thanksgiving. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and help us to see and understand Help us to walk daily in the light and pursue the kingdom and your righteousness covered with the blood of your Son, forgiven in Jesus' name. Amen.